Let's do a fun little quiz here. Uh, just raise your hand where you are and uh, feel free to look around as you raise your hand to see who's with you in these fears. How many of you are scared of heights? All right. Scared of snakes or rats or spiders somewhere in there. I hate rats and mice and opossums, which is just a big mouse that's horrible. What about flying in airplanes? Any of those? Okay, a few people. Dentist. All right. Zzz. Just to set you, uh, just to unnerve you a bit here this morning. Who fears public speaking? All right, if you would just come up here, I'd like you to explain to everyone why that, uh, why you're afraid of that. But all of us have certain fears. Some might even be a running joke among family and friends. My dad is legitimately scared of driving over high bridges. And my brother and I know this. And so sometimes when we're driving over high bridges, my, my brother and I might reach over and touch the steering wheel and just give a little jerk and uh, make comments about going towards the edge. So that, you know, that's what loving sons do, right? That's, we, we love dad. But each of us has certain fears. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand for these, okay? But how many of you fear failure or fear what the future may hold for you and for your family? How many of you fear losing a child or that your child will reject Christ? How many of you fear contracting COVID-19 or that the government is using COVID-19 to take civil liberties from you? How many of you fear a debilitating disease or being fired or being found out or being rejected or committing a certain sin and suffering the consequences of that sin or maybe dying? What, what would you say are your greatest fears? We all have fears, sometimes big ones, that affect our thoughts and behaviors. Is there, is there anything that will actually calm our fears? In Isaiah 41, God told his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God doesn't want his people to live in fear, so he comforts them with the reality of his presence and his power. I am with you, and I will strengthen you. King David wrote, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God didn't remove David from the valley of the shadow of death, but was with David, strengthening David as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. God's presence and God's power may not calm our circumstances, but they do calm our fears and reassure us in the hardest trials of our lives. My question to you is this, what can calm your fears? Not what can remove you from frightening circumstances, but what can calm and assure you in the middle of frightening circumstances? What do you believe, dear people of God, is sufficient to strengthen and help you 
when you're afraid. So here's the point I want to make. When you are most afraid, the presence and power of Jesus are sufficient to calm your fears, fortify your faith, and compel you onward. Fear is natural, but it doesn't have to control or paralyze you. Knowing Jesus is is with you, helping you, is very liberating. Very liberating, very freeing. In fact, it's the safest place to be. So I have four simple points that I hope help you understand this one big point. Number one, who God is. Number two, who the disciples were in the storm. Number three, who Jesus was in the storm. And number four, who Jesus is for us in our trials. So number one, who God is. One of the most profound sentences ever written goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God designed and constructed the universe. God designed all that there is. In Genesis 1, the phrase, and God said, appears 10 times. Eight of those in reference to God speaking and something coming into being. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 say, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Our confession is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And what comes next? Maker of heaven and earth. In Job chapter 38 and 39, God questions and humbles Job. The Lord asks a series of rhetorical questions uh, to bring things into perspective for Job. Questions like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and thus and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here your, shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? God alone created the universe. God alone commands the universe. God alone upholds the universe. Psalm 65, 5 through 8 say of God Almighty, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell in the ends at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Saints, by his strength, by his power, by his might, our God stills the roaring seas and calms the raging whitecaps. Our God is sovereign over every drop of water in the universe the place it resides, and the path it takes. We sing the song here at Jerusalem Church, Oh, Give Thanks, by Wendell Kimbrough from Psalm uh, 107. 
And I love the song. It's, the, it's that song with the lyrics, and we cried like drunken sailors, which may feel a bit strange for a church song, but read the psalm and you'll understand the lyrics. Anyway, consider Psalm 107, 23 through 30. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. God commands and storms arise. The seafarers of Psalm 107 cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and God graciously delivered them from their distress. And that tells us something about God. God sovereignly calmed the storm. God commanded, and the waves of the sea were quieted, and those who cried to the Lord were glad. And, and they were brought safely to their desired harbor of refuge. Psalm 89 verse 9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who is God? He is maker of heaven and earth and the sovereign of heaven and earth. Who is God? The creator before whom the waters tremble in fear. Psalm 77 verse 16 says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Dear friends, do you know who God is? In Exodus 14, Israel was really scared, afraid. They were trapped behind them. The Egyptian army approached. In front of them was the Red Sea. They could do nothing to rescue themselves. They were trapped. But their sovereign Lord was redeeming them from slavery and could not be stopped. Exodus 14, 21 and 22 recount. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Who is God? He is maker and commander of heaven and earth. The oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, streams, all obey him because he is their creator. He is their God. He is their master. He is their Lord. And this first point is meant to help you understand the significance of verses 23 through 27 and who Jesus is. Number two, who the disciples were in the storm. 
Remember, in verse 18, Jesus gave orders to the disciples to ready the boat to traverse the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore. Verse 23 says that Jesus boarded the boat and his disciples followed him. They were all headed together across the sea and some extraordinary things would happen on the other side of the sea. In fact, even on their way to the other side. Matthew alerts us that something big is coming. He says, behold, in other words, heads up, heads up, verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Mark tells us a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. That's very frightening. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It hasn't happened to me. I don't care for large boats in large bodies of water. I get seasick, but that's very frightening if this is happening. Angry water tosses boats wherever it wills. Scary, especially for seasick people like myself. This storm came by the providence of God. Could a perilous storm work for the good of the disciples? And the answer is yes. First, it revealed to the disciples their deficient faith. Second, it displayed for them the power of Jesus and how the presence and power of Jesus are sufficient to preserve them, body and soul. God doesn't take his people through terrifying circumstances because he's malicious or working against them. He loves them. He uses terrifying circumstances to draw them close to him and to fortify their faith on their road ahead. Verse 25 says, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The, the disciples were terrified, absolutely terrified. They thought they would die if Jesus didn't do something. And Jesus awoke and he said, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So what were the disciples like in the storm? Well, number one, they were following Jesus. They were following Jesus. That's good. Number two, they truly believed that Jesus could rescue them. That's good. And this is important. They had true faith. They, they had seen Jesus heal people with his divine power. So they knew that Jesus could do something. So they woke him up and they humbly prayed, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Their prayer arose out of desperation. They did believe, but their faith was deficient. Their faith was little, as Jesus said. They were, so three, they were deficient in faith and were therefore afraid. Now we need to think very carefully about their fear. So please listen closely. You don't want to misunderstand this. Some fear is rational, justified, and good. But some fear is not rational, justified, and good, and originates from a faith deficiency. The Greek uh, verb for fear in verse 23 is telos, which is not the common uh, verb for fear. In fact, it's used only three times in the New Testament. Delos is, is always used in connection with deficient faith. It's used here, 
It's used in Mark 440, where Mark recounts this same event, but Mark recounts that Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then Revelation 21.8 uses uh, this word to describe cowardly people who will suffer in hell. So their kind of fear was not simply the natural apprehension felt in a dangerous situation. It was more than that. It, it was a kind of fear that Jesus sets against faith. Not all fear is the result of a faith deficiency. But at least part of their fear in this moment was the result of a faith deficiency. So we should ask, what kind of fear did they have? Calvin helped us by saying, yet we ought to be aware that it is not every kind of fear which indicates a want of faith, but only that dread which disturbs the peace of the conscience in such a manner that it does not rest on the promise of God. End of quote. And that's it. That's the point here. Some fear, not all fear, but some fear originates because the fearful person does not rest on the promise of God. Let's go further with that. D.A. Carson notes, Jesus's rebuke is therefore not against skepticism of his ability, nor against the fear that the disciples like others might drown. Rather, they failed to see that the one so obviously raised up by God to accomplish the messianic work could not possibly have died in a storm while that work remained undone. Dan Doriani adds, disciples ought to have strong faith and confidence in Jesus. If the 12 knew that he was the savior, they should also have known that they could not perish in that storm for his work was not done, end of quote. So did Jesus fault them for valuing human life and being afraid of drowning? That was not the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter was the disciples were in the presence of God's appointed and sent Messiah, the Messiah sent to accomplish redemption, the Messiah who had not completed his redemptive work yet, and their fear overshadowed the gospel promises of God. If the boat capsized and they all drown in the sea, what would that say about God's gospel promises? It would mean that God's plan of redemption had failed. God's promise to Abraham would not have been fulfilled. God's promise to David would not have been fulfilled. Think about it like this. Brothers Dan and Bubba Kathy co-own Chick-fil-A. They're, they're worth around $14 billion. So let's say that Dan offers to treat you to lunch at one of his restaurants, and on the way, he mentions that he forgot his wallet. Would you be worried about lunch? Would you start expressing your concern to Dan? Hey, hey, listen, Dan, how, how are you going to pay for lunch? You said you'd treat me to lunch. How are we going to eat? I'm, I'm really worried about this, Dan. No, I think Dan's got it. I think Dan's got it. He said he'd treat you to lunch. And even if he did forget his wallet, he owns the franchise. I don't think it's a problem. Lunch is most definitely on Dan. There's no problem. Jesus was not going to die in that storm, and neither were his chosen disciples. 
Their fear eclipsed their trust in God's sovereign plan and promise of redemption, which would be achieved by the God-man asleep in their boat. And I think there was something else about their fear. Mark recounts that when they woke him, the disciples said this, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There are some bad, bad assumptions behind that question. They ask the Son of God, do you care? Of course he cared. He had come to redeem them, and no storm would cut his redemptive work short. So, one, they were following Jesus. Two, they believed Jesus could do something to rescue them. Three, they were deficient in faith and therefore afraid. And four, they had yet to understand the identity of Jesus. After he calmed the storm, they marveled and said, verse 27, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You can tell they didn't fully grasp his identity. But they would spend more time with him. This is not the end of the story. They would spend more time with him. They would witness the crucifixion and resurrection. So in time, this event on the sea would make much more sense to them. So dear saints, we are not so different from the 12 disciples. Sometimes we are afraid because we do not rest on the promise of God. Yes, we know that the scripture is true. We know that God's promises are sure. We know that God will preserve us and bless us. We know that salvation is ours and secure in Christ. But sometimes, dear brothers and sisters, sometimes our fear overshadows God's promise. And for a time, God's sovereignty and providence and love don't actually translate into peace and calm for us. Our deficiency of faith manifests in how we doubt God, question God, and fail to rest on the promise of God. And when we do this, this undermines our sense of security in Christ, and we are at best wobbly. Oh, how we need God's grace to meet us in our scariest moments, to comfort us with his presence and power. Number three who Jesus was in the storm. First, Jesus was their master leading them across the lake. He led, they followed. Second, Jesus is full-blown human. Verse 24 says that he was asleep. That's amazing. So Jesus got tired. He had a busy day. He was exhausted at the end of the day. So he, he lay down in the stern of the boat on a cushion to get some shut-eye. He was a human being. Third, Jesus slept well because he trusted God. Jesus didn't seem to have a problem falling asleep, as some of us might, nor did he seem to have a problem sleeping through a raging storm. I would have been vomiting over the side of the boat. So two things about his sleeping there. He was really tired and really confident in God's sovereignty and plan for him. In this sense, Jesus was the one with great faith. Not, not in the sense of saving faith, but in the sense of an unwavering confidence in God's providence, provision, protection, and plan. Proverbs 3, 24 says of those who keep wisdom and discretion, if you lie down, 
you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. How sweet the sleep of the Son of God who rested secure in his Father's care. Why would Jesus be worried in the security of his Father's will? Why would he be worried? He wasn't. At the beginning of Matthew, Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of David. That's super significant for Matthew. David was a type of Christ, a messianic figure, a historic foreshadowing of Christ Jesus. David wrote in Psalm 3 and 4, and there seems to be a connection between Matthew 8, 23 through 27 and these two Psalms. David says in Psalm 3, verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And then in Psalm 4, verse 8, David says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The Messiah and Davidic king slept well in that boat, in that storm, because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his Lord, his Father, would sustain him, would care for him, would take care of him. Fourth, Jesus was loving. He was the loving but direct teacher who addressed weakness in his disciples in order to strengthen and embolden his disciples. He was the great and loving teacher. He asked them, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? He's addressing a deficiency. And that, that he didn't say this to disgrace them or to harm them in some way. He said this to strengthen and embolden them. One study note said, quote, trials uncover the weakness of a believer's faith, but are occasions for growth, end of quote. Confident and successful people want to know their weaknesses in order to work on them and to grow personally. So they accept admonition in order to grow. Prideful people spurn admonition and stiffen under it. Don't tell me how I can, don't, don't show me my weaknesses. Jesus was admonishing them to grow them. He was identifying their weaknesses. He was drawing it out, letting them know about it as as well as he was drawing attention to his own strength in order to fortify their faith and compel them onward in the gospel mission. Storms are scary, but so are persecution and martyrdom. And these disciples would face persecution and martyrdom. And Jesus was helping them to see how his presence and how his power were sufficient in their fear and in their suffering. Why would he do that? He loved them. He loved them and wanted the best for them. Fifth, and this is central to these verses, Jesus is God incarnate who upholds and commands the universe. This is a major point. Jesus taught with divine authority. Jesus healed lepers. Jesus healed debilitating and deadly diseases. Jesus healed fevers. Jesus cast out evil spirits. Jesus commanded the winds and the sea. Verse 26, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Saints, the winds obeyed Jesus. The sea of Galilee obeyed Jesus. And the men ask, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And the answer is, Jesus is eternal God in human flesh. 
Remember my first point. Think, think about Genesis 1-1 and the other text that I shared and apply it here. The maker of heaven and earth had calmed the winds and the sea. This event on the sea tells you and me something significant, something essential about Jesus. Listen to these passages which confirm what I'm trying to say. John 1 verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1 2 adds, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Then Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then in Revelation 4, the Lord is sitting on his throne, and the 24 elders cast their crowns before him and say this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Who was Jesus in that storm? He was the maker of heaven and earth the Son of God through whom the Father made the universe, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, the powerful one who upholds the entire universe by the word of his omnipotence. Of course the winds and the sea obeyed him. He made them and he commands them. He rebuked the storm while at the same time sovereignly upholding and commanding and preserving the entire universe. By rebuking the weather and the water, Jesus displayed that he is holy, 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 the eternal God, the Lord Almighty. His every display of divine power demonstrated his power and authority to redeem his people from their sins, which is what he came to do. Think carefully now. Is leprosy original to God's created order? Is paraplegia original? Is fever original? Is demon possession original? Are violent storms original? No, these, these are all results of the fall, results of human sin. Adam threw the universe into chaos by his rebellion against God. Human sin corrupted the universe from natural disasters to mob violence to stinking appliances that last only a few years. The effect of sin is why the universe doesn't work right. By rebuking the storm, Jesus substantiates his power and authority over all creation and over all effects of sin in the world. He is the redeemer. He will renew creation from the effects of sin and one day the universe will be restored to work as it should. And these verses, they just work to assure us of that. Watch what he can do and connect that to our story, to God's story of redemption in the world. Sixth, Jesus is the compassionate and caring redeemer, master, king, and Lord. On this occasion, on this sea, in this violent storm, his divine power and authority blessed his disciples. 
He lovingly served them. One, Jesus answered their prayer. They didn't perish. He did it. He, he, he saved them. Sovereign power and authority are grace and salvation for God's chosen people. Two, Jesus revealed to them more of his identity, which fortified their faith and compelled them onward. He kept them safe. Why? To live another day, to keep learning from him, to keep serving him, to continue to prepare them to tell the nations of the crucified and risen Christ. So we looked at number one, who God is. Number two, who the disciples were in the storm. Number three, who Jesus was in the storm. But we can't stop there. We, if the truth of verses 23 through 27 does not make it into our hearts to shape the way that we think and the way that we live, we have not heard and we have not truly believed. This must shape us. Number four who Jesus is for us in our trials. Now, verses 23 through 27, they happened many, many, many years ago. The disciples saw it. They experienced it. But you and I were not in the boat. We weren't there. But that event on the sea benefits us greatly if we believe it. See, you have real fears. I have real fears. And, and some of these fears, they can actually control us. They can actually paralyze us. They, they shut us down. They, they sometimes control our thoughts. They sometimes control our behaviors. And if we are to serve Christ faithfully in what he has called us to do, we need to be able to trust him in the middle of terrifying circumstances. So we can endure terrifying circumstances for the glory of Christ's name. What, what does our paralyzation, whatever, I don't even know if that's a word. Is that the right word? In fear, we just can't do anything. We're sucking our thumbs in the fetal position. Say about our trust in God. Now, some fears are legitimate. And we are sucking our thumbs in the fetal position. And that's Okay. But sometimes our fear is because we're not resting in the promises of God. And that should concern us. God brings frightening events into our lives because he loves us. And I know that will resonate with some of you like, really? But he does. And, and if we don't believe that, that he brings terrifying things into our lives because he loves us, if we just reject that thought, then doubt and fear and anxiety and anger and bitterness and confusion and resentment will overrun us and we will not find peace. In fact, we may even abandon the gospel because we're recognizing, well, hey, if he's not taking me out of this, then he's not listening. But that's not true. He's in, he's with us in the terrifying search. We must believe that all that God brings our way, including frightening circumstances, work to fortify our faith in Christ and compel us onward in his love. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. We must believe that God's grace in Christ is sufficient to calm not our circumstances, but to calm our fears, to calm us. God brings scary events into our lives to do several things for us. Number one, 
to uncover the weakness of our faith. Not to crush us, not to squash whatever faith we have, but to remind us of our need so that we plead. Number two, to remind us of the presence and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. When we are afraid and we turn to Christ and rest on his promise of grace, God comes through. Though he may not remove us from danger, he does calm our fears in our danger. Three, to fortify our faith. God uses scary things to make our faith stronger. When we need him to provide, he does. And then coming out of those terrifying things, we're like, look how God provide, provided. Look how faithful he is. He's upholding me. He provides when I need it. I made it through. Praise God. He fortified my faith. I'm stronger on the other side of this. We've experienced this. Four, to display the power of Jesus in our weaknesses. As God compels us onward by his grace and spirit, the presence and power of Christ are noticeable to us. In fact, as we delight in the presence of Christ and count on the power of Christ in our scariest times, we are further assured of his grace and spirit at work in us. The, the benefit of verses 23 through 27 is this. When you and I are most afraid, the presence and power of Jesus are sufficient to calm our fears, fortify our faith, and compel us onward to do the work God has called us to do. So is the final conclusion of this message, Jesus will calm the storms of your life? No. No, that's, that's actually not the message at all. God never promises to calm your circumstances. He may actually take you into danger purposefully. In fact, when, when everyone else is running from the danger, you'll often notice the Christians are the ones running into the danger. Who wants to reach the Muslim people groups of the world for Jesus Christ and the glory of God? Christians do. They run into danger sometimes. What God does promise is to be with you when you are afraid, to be your comfort and solace and peace and joy and power when you head into danger and walk through danger. He promises to preserve you. So let's face it, brothers and sisters, when everything is going well, things are just, man, the sun is shining, I'm feeling good, my work is going great. We actually sometimes feel like our faith is really strong. That we, oh man, am I a strong Christian. Look at my faithfulness. Look what, what I'm doing. But things are going well, sunny skies. But danger and threat, danger and threat have a way of scaring us into realizing how deficient our faith is, how weak our faith is, how little our faith is. And, and I'm not saying, not non-existent. Our faith is there, true saving faith. But it's deficient, it's weak, it's little. J.C. Ryle helpfully said about verses 23 through 27, I share this to encourage you. He says, in the latter part of these verses, we learn that true saving faith is often mingled with much weakness and infirmity. It is a humbling lesson, but a very wholesome one. 
What a vivid picture we have here of the hearts of thousands of believers. How many have faith and love enough to forsake all for Christ's sake and follow him wherever he goes and yet are full of fears in the hour of trial. How many have grace enough to turn to Jesus in every trouble crying, Lord, save us, and yet not grace enough to lie still and believe in the darkest hour that all is well. Truly believers have reasoned indeed, have reason indeed to be clothed with humility. That's talking my language. I am so weak. In those moments of dark trial, fear, I'm scared, don't know what to do. I can just shut down. I should be humble. Lord, save me and then rest in his provision of grace. The disciples illustrate how we can be. We, we are following Christ. We're in the boat, so to speak, yet we are full of fears when our hour of trial comes. And sometimes all we can do is pray, Lord, save me, rescue, from, rescue me from this. And, and that's very humbling. And that's right where God is at work. And Ryle gave great comfort to believers. He said, we have great reason to thank God that Jesus, our great high priest, is very compassionate and tenderhearted. He knows our frame. He considers our infirmities. He does not cast off his people because of defects. He pities even those whom he reproves. The prayer even of little faith is heard and gets an answer. Praise God that that's true. Brothers and sisters, when you are most afraid, the presence and power of Jesus are sufficient to calm your fears, to fortify your faith, and to compel you onward. Your prayer of little faith is heard by your loving Father. So cry out and trust that Jesus is with you, helping you live for the glory of God. 